Well, good evening and um, welcome. Uh, for those who are new or visiting, my name is Jordan. I'm the assistant pastor, and I'll be bringing God's word tonight. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 16. We've been doing a sermon series on the Corinthian church, kind of a broad overview of some of the problems that this church was facing. Uh, this is a problem church, and, and the Apostle Paul is trying to uh, address and rectify some of the issues that the church was facing. Um, some of these chapters in 1 Corinthians, I found them to be quite challenging and hard. Um, Donville is soon going to be called the Church of Hard Passages because we often tackle these difficult passages. Uh, this passage is an example of that. It uh, deals mostly with marriage, um, and I realize that not everyone here is married, so I want to assure you that though the sermon will tackle marriage and focus mostly on marriage, uh, there is something to be said for everyone here. So pay close attention in the sermon, and uh, there might be something also uh, for you to learn. But why don't we look at 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 16. This is God's word for our instruction. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote... It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all of you were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, uh, not I, but, he's quoting Jesus, he says, uh, not I, but the Lord, quoting Jesus, the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, and then he, he's referring to the Spirit's inspiration here. He says, I, not the Lord Jesus, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy." But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the word of the Lord. Um, let's ask for his help in understanding it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, um, we trust that um, 
under the inspiration of your spirit, the Apostle Paul wrote these words for the instruction of the Corinthian church, and not just for them, but also for us, that we might learn something from this. Lord, use your word to speak to us, that you might speak um, to the hearts and lives of those who are present, um, to those who are married and to those who are single, uh, to those who are widowed, to those who are lonely, to those um, who are eager to get married. We pray that you would use this text to um, challenge us, but also to comfort us in the faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I recently conducted a few weddings, um, several weddings, and at one of the, the weddings that I conducted, uh, I reminded the congregation of these words that at a wedding, a wedding is one of those uh, lifetime events that you want to get right. Um, obviously, you should, as I said to them, you should show up to the right place at the right time on the right day, preferably wearing the right clothes. When you say your vows, it's important that you say the right name. The bride wants the right dress and the right ring and the right venue and the right menu and the right song for the first dance. Everything's got to be right on the wedding day. And you want the service to run the right way too, right? I'll make sure you get the Bible reading right. The story has been told of a wedding where someone accidentally got the Bible reading wrong. Instead of reading from 1 John 4.18, which says, Perfect love drives out fear, the reader read from John 4.18, which says, You have had five husbands, <laughs> and you aren't even married to the man you're living with right now. So it's quite important that you get the right Bible reading. When it comes to the issue of marriage, the Corinthians got a lot wrong. I mean, you just read about the state of the Corinthian church, and it was a mess. You had sexual immorality, you had people having affairs, you had people, as we just read, um, restricting sex within marriage. Um, there were massive marriage issues in the church, and Paul addresses those issues here in this chapter. And not only does he address marriage, he spends much of his time talking about marriage, but he does also have something to say about those who are single. And so what I endeavor to do tonight is uh, tackle some of the things that Paul has said about marriage. I can't say everything, obviously. And then towards the end of the sermon, tackle some of the things that Paul says about singleness. And of course, it goes without saying that if you have any questions about this, um, Gerald is your man after the service. Go find him. And uh, he has 35 years of ministry experience. Well, let's look at lesson one. Lesson one. So we'll look at six lessons tonight. Lesson one from this passage is that marriage is a gift. And that's what verse seven says. Look at verse seven. The apostle Paul, he, he personally saw the benefit of being unmarried. He allowed him freedom to travel, to do his missionary work, to preach. He could do things that an unmarried, uh, that married couples could not do. But because, because he saw the benefit of being married, he wishes that all people could experience that benefit of well, as well. But he also sees the benefit of marriage too. And what does he say about marriage in verse 7? He says that it's also a gift. Marriage is a gift. And I think it's unfortunate that some people in our society see marriage more as a curse than a gift, like some necessary evil that will inevitably end in divorce. Back in the 1500s, John Calvin once said 
that Satan has always endeavored to make marriage an object of hatred and scorn in order to withdraw men and women from it. Just think about how the movies portray marriage. How do the movies typically portray marriage? In a positive light? In a negative light? One article says this. In film, marriages are often shown as uh, frustrating, stifling, unhappy, abusive, or worse. Depending on the genre, cinematic marriages tend to end either in adultery or murder, typically. What about the kinds of, of jokes and remarks uh, that people make about marriage, like it's something of a, you know, a chore or a, a miserable existence of suffering? It's no wonder that marriage rates are declining. I mean, if marriage were so awful, like, why would you want to get married? Why would anyone want to get married? And that's what people are saying these days. They're saying, well, I don't want to get married because everyone complains about it. And it sounds so awful. But I I disagree with the naysayers. Marriage is a great thing. It's a fantastic thing. I say that because God created it. God designed it. It's a gift uh, for our enjoyment. And God doesn't design junk. He designed something very beautiful when he designed marriage. He designed it to be a permanent, exclusive relationship between a man and a woman, where a relationship where both partners might experience companionship and intimacy, and if God so blesses them, even a family. But like any good gift, we need to properly understand it. The only way to understand it, obviously, is by going to the one who designed it. I was struck by this illustration. Let me quote it to you. You imagine this. Imagine you receive this really fantastic gift. It's a strange device. It's curious. It's complex. It's beautiful. And there's this instruction manual. If you're like me, you'll probably just chuck the manual away and ignore the instructions. But this time you don't. This time you hold on to the instructions And you say, maybe I should study this thing and understand how it works. So you read the instructions. You find out that this device will explode if put under, put in the sun. And obviously, you'll be glad that you've read the instructions because that's a crucial piece of information. Well, here's the thing. Too often, couples go into marriage and they haven't read the instructions. They don't know what they're getting themselves into. They don't understand it. They don't understand God's intention for marriage. They can't even give you a definition of marriage. They just think, oh, I'm going to have this beautiful day with cake and and wine and dancing and everyone's going to have a good time. But they haven't actually consulted the manual. They don't know what the Bible says about marriage. The Bible has a lot to say about marriage and God's intention for marriage. And so anyone who's, perhaps you're here, you're thinking about marriage, well, read the manual and that will help you. So marriage is a gift, and it's a good gift. We have to understand that. There's another lesson here. Marriage is exclusive. Let's talk about um, how marriage is exclusive. Romans, the Roman Empire, had this really, really warped view of marriage. Marriage in ancient Rome was not exclusive at all. It was was pretty acceptable for men to um, have more than one partner There was this ancient Roman lawyer named Demosthenes, and he once said that in ancient Rome, it was common for men uh, to 
uh, keep a concubine, to keep a mistress for pleasure, and then a wife was supposed to produce an heir. That, that was common. The average Roman citizen thought this, believed this about marriage, that this was a proper way to conduct your life. And obviously, it posed some problems for the Corinthian church because what you had is you had all of these new converts coming into the church, and this was their view of marriage. And they didn't know that things needed to change. And because the culture allowed for infidelity, so also Christians began to practice infidelity within their marriages. Now, add to that a little bit of bad teaching, a little bit of fake news, a little bit of misinformation, and some Christians were teaching that only the soul counts. So they go to church on Sunday, a pastor would get up and he'd say, or one of the teachers in the church would get up and say, yeah, it's, only the it's only the soul that really matters. It doesn't really matter what you do with your body. You can live however you want, just as long as you take care of your soul. And people took that to mean, well, I can just go out and eat as much as I want, drink as much as I want, do as much as I want, because when I die, my body will go into the ground and my soul will go to be in heaven anyway. So it doesn't really matter what I do. And that's how people were living. And what does Paul think about that? Well, he's, obviously he says, wrong. That's wrong. Look at chapter 6, verse 13. Now, I can't say everything there is to say about chapter 6, but verses, chapter 6, verses 12 to 20, in verse 13, he says that the body is not designed for this kind of lifestyle. God did not create your body for sexual immorality. Your body has not been created as an instrument for sin. When God, before the, before the foundation of the world, was thinking of how he might design you, he didn't, you know, think, oh yeah, I'm going to create a man or a woman so that they might live their lives sinning against me and rebelling against me. That's not God's intention for humans. We weren't created for that. And his argument in chapter 6 is that, that to engage in this kind of sexual immorality is to misuse the bodies that God gave us. Think about, by way of illustration, I don't know if this is a good illustration or not, it might be. Think of it like this, taking your wife's wedding dress and mopping the floor with it. You're not using it the right way. Or taking wedding china and playing frisbee with it. You're not using the china the right way. And Paul's point here is, guys, you, 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 God created you you're fearfully and wonderfully made, but you're, you're not using your bodies in the way that God intended you to use them. So use them the right way. Don't use them the wrong way. And then he sends, says at the end this beautiful reminder, this precious promise that we belong to God, he says, that our whole bodies, our body and soul, we belong to God. How good is that? Because there are so many people in this world who feel like they don't belong. They struggle to belong. And the passage, to Paul here in the passage says, and remember this, God still has his hand upon your life. He hasn't let you go. You belong to him, but also use your bodies in the way that he intended you to use them. Not only do we belong to God, but in chapter 7, we're told that husbands and wives belong together. Chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, marriage is a life 
exclusively shared between one man and one woman, where the, we're told that the husband yields himself to the wife and the wife yields herself to the husband. It's a shared life, an ex- exclusive life, where you share a home and a bed and finances, and if God so blesses, you might share children together. And as you vowed on your wedding day, you promised to forsake all others. So marriage is exclusive. There's a third lesson. Third lesson is that marriage is intimate. Now you see, some, like I said, some in Corinth, they had this very, very permissive view of sex. This group was completely ignoring the rules, okay? But there were some in the church who were reacting against this. And they had a very, they, they took the opposite extreme. They had a very restrictive view of sex. And this group was making up their own rules, adding to the rules. Now, look at chapter 7, verse 1. Paul gives us a direct quote from this group. Um, let me emphasize, these are, these are not Paul, this is not Paul's thoughts. These are not Paul's words. He's simply quoting what this group has been saying. And they were teaching that it is not good for a man to have sex with a woman. Full stop. Outside of marriage, inside of marriage. It's just not good. Don't do it. And so where the first group was misusing sex, the second group was misunderstanding sex. And they didn't understand that that it was a gift. They didn't understand that God designed it. For couples, he, that it was good, that it's to be used within marriage. There was no understanding of that. And I find in Christian circles, there, there often these extremes are quite common. You have one extreme that takes God's rules and throws it out. That's called lawlessness. You know, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. doesn't really matter. I have faith in Jesus, but I can live however I want. There are other groups within the church that go to the opposite extreme. What do they do? They add rules to the Bible. No, no chewing gum on Saturday afternoon. No wearing jeans if you're a woman. Uh, your hair needs to be down to here. Um, you can't have red chairs in a Presbyterian church. All kinds of wacky rules. They add rules to the Bible and they make them salvation issues. Rules upon rules upon rules. Uh, Don't dance. Don't even think about dancing. Um, Don't have long hair. And see, what we don't need is more rules. I mean, in the end of the book of Revelation, John warned the church not to add or take anything away from God's word. And so we are not to ignore God's rules, neither are we to add to God's rules. And see, more rules don't even fix the problem anyways. Um, What we need, ultimately, is a change of heart. That's what, what God does in us when we come to faith. He changes the heart. Now, the issue in Corinth was that there were these spouses who were creating these rules within marriage. They were, they were withholding sex from their partners. That's what was happening. And Paul says, okay, let me address this issue. It is not wrong to abstain temporarily, temporarily for a period of time for a good reason. And then in verse 5, he gives us a good reason. What's that reason in verse 5? Prayer. That's a good reason. There might be other good reasons not mentioned here. There might be physical reasons. There might be 
emotional reasons. There might be all kinds of good reasons, but he says this is to be temporary and it's to be mutually agreed upon. But the general principle here is that you should not withhold intimacy within marriage because intimacy is part of the gift of marriage. John MacArthur once said this about intimacy in marriage. He said, God created it to be the expression of love on the deepest human level and to be a beautiful and powerful bond between a husband and wife. Again, verse 3, we are told that a husband belongs to his wife, meaning that his chief concern is not himself. A husband is not a bachelor anymore. He's not a child. He's not you know, a kid who wakes up and eats when he wants and, and watches what he wants and does whatever he wants with no regard for anyone else. A married man, a married man, is to yield himself, we are told, to his wife. What does that mean? It means he's to be concerned about his wife. And not just in the area of sex, but just in all of life. To have a genuine love and concern for the woman he has devoted his life to. To be considerate of her when he cleans the house. When he makes plans, he's taking her thoughts into account. He's he might cook dinner for her to give her a break. He, when he spends money, he's thinking about her. He's yielding himself to her. And as it relates to the passage, which is right here in front of us, when it comes to the bedroom, he yields her, himself to her feelings and her thoughts and her perspective, and he treats her with dignity. And, of course, that same principle, Paul says, applies to the other spouse, to the wife. So we're told that there's this kind of mutual yielding, the wife to the husband and the husband to the wife. Now, I just want to add this, that there are cases where there are issues in that department. And if there is an issue in the bedroom, it might be because there's an issue in the marriage. And that's usually the case. You know, the, kitchen, the, the fights that you have in the kitchen usually follow you to the other parts of the house. And so, if that is an issue, what should you do? Well, start addressing the other areas of your marriage. Perhaps it might be conflict. Perhaps it might be bitterness. Perhaps it might be resentment or anger or apathy. You start sorting those issues out in a godly way. You start thinking about how the gospel applies to those issues. To, say, apathy or bitterness. You start forgiving your spouse confessing your sin, forgiving them, and reconciling, well, that will help in the other areas of marriage as well. So as you find unity in the kitchen or the living room or at the dinner table, you might find unity in the bedroom. So marriage is about intimacy, and that's, that's a part of marriage, and Paul makes that very clear here. Marriage is also for life. Marriage is for life. In ancient Rome, marriage was not for life. The Romans had a very low view of marriage. Marriage was for however long you wanted it to be, and divorce was really, really common. So easy to get a divorce. And it's likely that the church had many divorced men and women in their congregation. And then, of course, you had Judaism as well. Um, there were new converts coming from Judaism. And the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, used to teach that men could divorce women 
And there were a lot of different scenarios where you could do that, like making a bad meal or something like that. That's actually a case. A men in Judaism could divorce women for bad cooking. Poor women. There were some in the church who thought that divorce was okay for any reason. But look at verse 10. What does Paul tell us in verse 10? Look at verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, when he says, not I, but the Lord, he's actually quoting Jesus there. He's saying, this is the teaching of Jesus. He's paraphrasing Jesus' words. And what, what did Jesus say in Matthew 19? What God has joined together, let no man separate. I was struck by this um, story from the LA Times of this couple. They wanted a divorce. They refused to move out of their New York home. And they took the matter to court. And the judge said, well, if you can't sort it out, I order you to build a wall in the middle of the house. So the husband and the wife lived with that wall. The husband could only get to the dining room by climbing up his neighbor's stairs from the outside, stepping over the balcony, jumping through the window. And the wife complained that her husband was still late making her life a living nightmare by yelling, banging, and turning off the heat in the middle of winter. And they made a vow to each other to stay in the house until the other moves out. But obviously that didn't happen. Now the question is, how does, like, how does a couple get to that point? It doesn't happen overnight. You don't just wake up and think, oh, let's build a wall in the middle of our house. No. Divorce happens slowly but surely over time. Separation happens within the marriage. Um, and, when I, and when instead of a couple, when instead of moving closer together in love, when instead of uniting, over time, slowly but surely, a couple begins moving slowly and slowly and slowly apart from one another, further away from the vows that they made on their wedding day. And marriage is for life. We're told that here. But that doesn't mean that a marriage is easy. You have to work at your marriage. When you married your beautiful bride or your dashing groom, you married a sinner. Did you know that? That you married a sinner on your wedding day. I hope you all know that. I mean, you'll be in a shock, in for a shock if you didn't know that. A marriage is a union of two sinful people, two imperfect people. It shouldn't be shocking to you when your wife does wrong by you or when your husband does wrong by you. And then add to that marriage the fact that we conduct our marriages in a fallen world, in a sinful world. So you have two sinners married to one another, and you're living your life in a fallen world where you experience sickness, where there's time pressure, where there's pressure on money, where there's pressures at work, where there's all kind of, kinds of stressors that, um, that put pressure on the marriage. This was true of the Corinthian church. It's true in our day as well. So what do you do when you're in that place where two sinful people find themselves in a state of dis disunity, unable to cope with the pressures of life? 
Well, it's then that many people turn to divorce. They say, well, I never intended to divorce, but now it seems like this is the only way out. But it's when you are in that state, it's when you're in that state, that faith becomes your greatest tool. It's in those moments when you, re- when you might remember that the same God who created the world in six days, the same God who parted the Red Sea, the same God who raised Jesus from the dead, it's that God, we believe it's that God who can take your marriage and restore it and bring healing to it. If he could raise Jesus from the dead, surely that resurrection power can bring you back together. But you have to be willing to look to him. You have to be willing to trust him with your marriage and start taking those steps to move closer to your spouse in, in love. Now, before we move on to our next point, there's probably a question that, um, that you, you might have, and don't worry, Gerald, I'll answer the question so you don't have to answer it. But it might be the question relating to legitimate cases of divorce. Is there ever a time when divorce is acceptable? A lot of people have that question. And I believe there are some cases where it is. I was struck by the words of this one pastor who said, even though all divorces are the result of sin, not all divorces are sinful. There are three valid reasons for divorce, I believe. The first, Jesus talks about in Matthew 19, and that's adultery. And there are instances where that that actually does happen. And the, the one spouse is permitted to leave, but... Does that mean that they should? Well, that's a wisdom issue. I've seen many cases where in those situations, God has brought much healing to the marriage and restored the marriage in in an incredible way. And so, again, if you ever find yourself in that situation, you know, look to Christ, trust in Him. Uh, Remind yourself that God can take the messiest of situations and bring healing out of that. There's another valid reason. Abandonment. I mean, that's what the passage tells us in verse 15. One person says, I'm done with the marriage. I'm walking away. I'm out. I'm checked out. Well, the, the innocent party is free to remarry, Paul says, if the unbeliever leaves. And then I include abuse as a valid reason. First, because it's a form of abandonment. Second, because the Bible condemns it in the strongest way. And then third, because we have, as a church, a moral obligation, a duty of care to protect those who are in danger. So, what have we learned so far? Marriage is a gift. Marriage is exclusive. Marriage is intimate. Marriage is for life. Marriage carries responsibility. And that's the next, uh, next pat, uh, lesson here. Marriage carries responsibility. Let's unpack verses 12 to 16. Look at verses 12 to 16. And let me just paraphrase the scenario, what's happening in verses 12 to 16. You've got these two unbelieving pagans. They're married. They are loyal to the emperor. They worship in the temple. They dabble in a bit of Greek religion. They live a fairly secular life. 
And all of a sudden, one day, Paul rocks up into town and either the husband or the wife is converted. They become a Christian. What do you do? This is a common story for many people. I mean, not just back then, but today, you know, an atheist or a Muslim or a Buddhist um, couple um, goes to church. One of them is converted. The other is not. What do you do? A lot of people in Corinth were saying, well, didn't the Apostle Paul say in a previous place that a, a believer should not marry an unbeliever? Missionary dating is wrong, uh, that you should not be unequally yoked. And Paul does teach that, and it is wrong. But you can't undo a marriage. And what Paul says in this scenario is that, that there, is a, there, there is a scenario where the believing spouse will sanctify the unbelieving spouse and the children. Now, what does that mean? Well, what that means, what that doesn't mean is that the unbelieving family members will go to heaven. It doesn't mean that the unbelieving family members are saved. It doesn't mean that the unbelieving family members are Christians. All it means is that God is going to use this one believer. And, and God is going to use that person as a Christian influence in the home, as a way of bringing the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to that, that family. So he instructs these believers not to jump ship, not to abandon their husbands and wives, not to abandon their situations, but to stick it out, to persevere, to, to, to uh, stay in it. Unless, of course, the believer, unbeliever is the one who throws in the towel and says, no, nah, I'm done. Now, it's often the case that God works through families. One member of the family comes to trust in Christ. The rest of the family uh, doesn't. But in time, what God does is he might use the believer as an influence in that home. The lived faith of mom, the prayers of dad, the, um, the auntie or the uncle, he might use them as a way to influence the rest of the family as a witness for Christ. Now, there's a statistic I want to quote for you, and it says this. 60% of people come to faith through the influence of a family member or a friend. 11% come through uh, come to faith through the, the witness of a ministry worker. So, typically speaking, on average, people come to faith in Christ in families, not through, they do come to faith through missionary work, but it's mostly through the influence of a family member or a friend. So, yeah, we have this responsibility as believers to start at home, to share our faith with our kids, to teach them who Jesus is, why he came, why it matters. And if we have a Christian family, to, to encourage growth and do the work of discipleship in the home. Well, we've come to this kind of final lesson, six lessons, six points, on a Sunday evening, on a long weekend. We're on lesson six. This is my final point. Marriage is not necessarily for everyone. And marriage is not better. Unmarried people are not lacking. And this myth in the church needs to be debunked because it's quite common in the church for people to kind of, in some ways, idolize marriage as if it's the ultimate state. But that's not what Paul says here. Paul 
says that both marriage and singleness are a gift in their own respective ways. In God's wisdom, he calls both married people and single people into the church to serve Christ. As one writer once said, single people need married people to show them the type of love that Jesus offers, and married people need single people to show that his love is more than enough for true and lasting joy. And it's evident that in every congregation, you'll have at least one-third of the entire congregation will be single, either kids, teenagers, single adults, uh, widows, those who have been divorced. And in a sermon on marriage, it goes without saying that you need to be reminded that your status in life matters, that God has a plan for you, and he's working out his purposes in you. And we see multiple examples of this in Scripture, don't we? Take the the Apostle Paul, for example. The Apostle Paul, in verse 7, says, I wish all of you were as I am, unmarried, but each has a gift from God. And then look at verse 8. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good to remain single. He concedes then that there will be those who desire to marry. They should pursue that. But singleness is a gift. Now think about what the Apostle Paul was able to do as a single man. He was able to travel across the Mediterranean. He was able to work two jobs, both as a tent maker and then as a missionary. He was able to um, travel from one place to another, even while being persecuted and beaten. You can't take a family, you can't bring your family into a situation like that. You can't bring a wife or kids into a situation like that. So Paul experienced firsthand um, the grace of God, and he understood that, that singleness was a gift to be used to build up the church. And he's not the only one in the Bible. Joseph, for a time in his life, was single. So was Ruth. So was Naomi. Uh, What about Martha, Mary Magdalene, some of the apostles? They were all single. And then, of course, the greatest example of a single man was... Sunday school answer. Jesus. Thank you. Jesus was single. He lacked nothing. He carried out his mission perfectly as a single man. He's the model. A single man is the model of faith for both single people, widows, and married people. That's encouraging. And so it has to be a gift. And if you are single, well, that's God's provision for you today. Now, that might change tomorrow. Um, But for today... This is where God has placed you. And the question is, for you, how are you going to use your unique status to glorify God and love your neighbor? How are you going to do that? That's, that's the calling that we all have. I mean, how, you could say that to a married person. How are you going to use your unique status, your position, to glorify God and love your neighbor? And you could say that about any vocation. If you're a doctor or a lawyer or a nurse, How are you going to use the circumstances that you've been given in life 
to glorify God and love your neighbor. Let me conclude by saying this. If you ever get the chance to study church history, you will find that God used all kinds of people in his plan to advance his church. You've got single women like Amy Carmichael. You've got single, young single men like Martin Luther. He later married, but most of his ministry was as a single man. You'll find couples like Charles and Susanna Spurgeon. You'll discover how God used, um, there's a story of a mixed marriage. Uh, the story of uh, St. August, Augustine was a story of a mixed marriage where God used uh, a believing mother in an unbelieving home to influence her son, Augustine, and he became one of the greatest pastors in the history of the church. So my encouragement is this. Again, wherever you are, however you are, how are you going to use your circumstances to glorify God and serve Him where you are today? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we um, thank you again for yet another um, challenging passage. Lord, there will un undoubtedly be um, many questions that come to mind about this topic. And Lord, um, many uh, practical scenarios that we ourselves are dealing with. We pray that your spirit would take this word and use it um, to encourage us, to comfort us, and again, to challenge us, that um, you might also be with those married couples, that you might strengthen their marriages and use those marriages as a way to advance your kingdom, and that you might also take those who are single and encourage them also that they might serve you well in your kingdom. And so we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.